Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 71 of the Thirty Years' War. In the last episode, we examined several events which changed the landscape of the conflict, and it was before Christmas and all that jazz, so you may have forgotten, but we looked at the beginnings of the peace conferences at Munster and Osnabrück, and the increased Swedish military prowess following the arrival of Lennart Torstensson and the triumph at the Second Battle of Breitenfeld. These events suggested not just that the war was entering its final phase, but also that it was really starting to turn against the Habsburgs in virtually all theatres. This was evident in central Germany, where the Swedish army was still on the rampage, but at 1642 turned to 1643, it was also to be visible in the French theatre too. In this episode then, we're going to follow on from that Swedish triumph by focusing on the exploits of their French ally. It was a time of great triumph, but also of bitter loss. Before we do delve into that, though, I want to make you aware of something that's happening in the next few days. You see, over the last two weeks, I worked feverishly to make a 12-episode series, which will be available for patrons. The first episode of this series will be available to everyone, so you can get a glimpse of what's to come, but what's it all about? Well, I'll talk more about its inner workings and my plan for it in the very first episode, which should be out this Friday. But to cut a long story short, we're going to be covering the years 1838 to 1846, and we're going to be looking at Anglo-American diplomacy. If that sounds interesting to you, and if you'd like to know more about this crisis-ridden period between what would become two great allies, but which at that time were two very uneasy and competitive rivals then make sure you check out our Patreon page by clicking on the link in the description below. You should be aware that as this is fundraising time for the last round of my PhD fees, we have whacked Patreon with a huge discount. If you sign up for an annual membership, you can get 16% off. Why 16%? Because that's the maximum amount they allowed me to give. So yeah, head on over there and you'll be able to get all episodes of that multi-part series. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys think. Some really hard research went into it, but also some really fascinating things come out of it as well. Again, the first episode is launching in a couple of days, so find out more then. But do keep an eye out for it and make sure to let me know what you think. Okay, back to our 30 years war. Let's get into it. 
The Prince of Condé was within his rights to feel hard done by. He had been given command of the northwestern theatre of France, near the border with the Spanish Netherlands, but the front was expected to be secondary in importance and intensity. The real military theatre of importance in 1643, it was expected, was that of Catalonia. So, Condé's instructions amounted to a directive to block whatever expeditions the Portuguese commander, a man by the name of Francisco de Milo, might launch. It was a dull enough appointment for a prince of the blood. Condé was, after all, fourth in line to the French throne, notably behind King Louis XIII's infant son. Condé's father had been viewed with suspicion in years past precisely for that reason, especially before a son was born to Louis in 1638. Now that he was placed in this secondary front with few opportunities to make his name, it was not hard to imagine that the inexperienced 22-year-old Condé felt like he was being punished for his father's crimes. Suddenly and unexpectedly, however, this theatre was to become the centre of a new Spanish initiative to resurrect the old fears of 1636 by launching an invasion of France from Flanders once again. The target of Francisco de Milo's assault was the town of Roqua. On the 19th of May 1643, Condé marched with his 21,000 men to confront de Milo's 23,000 in a risky pitched battle. Condé's advisers had cautioned against this strategy. Pitched battles were unpredictable, messy and often inconclusive, but Condé persisted. Prickly and self-important though he was, Condé was consumed by a self-confidence which was to prove the difference. Beginning at 3am, Condé assaulted the veteran Portuguese commander with the full force of his army, and the men under his command suffered numerous close calls. But by the end of the battle, it was plain that reforms in organisation and tactics had proved the difference. Opposing Condé was the cream of the Spanish crop, with their reserves of heavy infantry laid out in the traditional tertios, daring Condé's men to challenge them. Over a front more than two and a half kilometres wide, the challenge was taken up, and in scenes not dissimilar to those of Breitenfeld, the Spanish infantry were broken, for the first time on such a scale, by their French counterparts. Demilo's spring campaign spluttered to a halt, amidst the loss of more than 7,000 casualties to the French 4,500. The victory moved the French to delay their arrival at Westphalia, which opened days later on the 23rd of May, 1643. But the battle was significant for additional reasons. The first reason was that it represented a signal triumph for Condé, who made hearty use of propaganda to emphasise and exaggerate the scale of the victory. Condé returned to Paris soon afterwards to be wined and dined and adored by the Parisians, who were taught to believe in the military prowess of this prince. Condé attached his army to that of Marshal Jean-Baptiste Gabriant along the Upper Rhine in midsummer, but following this move, the campaign actually turned against the French. Quartering his men along the east bank of the Rhine in land recently taken from the Bavarians, when the Bavarian commander appeared on the horizon in November and inflicted a terrible defeat on the French at the Battle of Tuttlingen, everything seemed to have gone awry. Fortunately for Condé, his name wasn't associated with this defeat, and he remained curiously isolated from any damage to his reputation. But the French army as a whole was less fortunate, as 1643 ended with this effective defeat of France's army in Germany, 
and the virtual undoing of Condé's triumph at Roquois. Perhaps the sole silver lining for France was that Marshal Touraine, a rising star in the French army, was appointed to rebuild the army on the Rhine in place of Gabriant, who had been slain. The second reason Roquois was important concerns the political context in France when Condé's victory was learned of. On the other end of the urgent update was not Cardinal Richelieu, but his successor, another cardinal by the name of Jules Mazarin. By late 1642, Richelieu had been prematurely aged by more than 15 years of active political campaigning, not to mention several campaigns against the enemies of France. Richelieu had preserved his political position by sheer force of will and tact, making use always of the firm friendship he enjoyed with the king. In his final significant act, Richelieu helped the king defeat the latest in a scheme fanned by King Louis's brother, and a rising political star and favourite, the Marquis of Cinq-Mars. Louis's brother Gaston was humiliated one last time, and Cinq-Mars was executed. Thereafter, as he returned to Paris in November, Richelieu's health deteriorated until, as Richard Lodge recorded, he relapsed into unconsciousness, which was only broken by occasional intervals till the following midday, when a groan and a last convulsion of the limbs announced that all was over, and that the man who had been for so many years the great motive power in France had ceased to live. The great cardinal was dead, and while the full extent of his impact upon France remains up for debate, what is not debatable is that Richelieu was wise enough to plan for a successor. In one of his final meetings with Louis XIII, in fact, Richelieu recommended that Jules Mazarin be given his position as France's first minister. It was a request which the king, fortunately, was determined to honour. Mazarin had arrived in France from Rome as Julio Mazzarini, and in 1628 he met Richelieu for the first time and quickly impressed him. Mazarin was persuaded to join the papal service thereafter, and he rose steadily up the ranks, being made cardinal in 1641. So Mazarin was ready, just in time it seemed, to pick up where Richelieu had left off, and the king's new minister would certainly have been buoyed by news of the victory at Roquois, not least because the appointment of Condé to that front had been one of Richelieu's final political decisions. The ghost of the late cardinal was keenly felt, but Mazarin had little time to mourn, as he was confronted with a still more disconcerting death that of King Louis XIII himself. During the campaigning season of 1642, Richelieu had accompanied the king to the front at Roussillon in the south, and the two had watched as the French army enjoyed several successes. Yet it was plain to Louis's entourage that the king's health was deteriorating, and some believed he would not even last the winter. His health had been poor for some time, and he had felt compelled to rely on Richelieu more and more, as gout, headaches, stomach disorders and failing lungs rocked his constitution from 1640. The rigours of the war certainly had not helped, as the stress from campaigning increased the pains and reduced the time for leisure and rest which the king needed. Expressing his view of events to Richelieu on one occasion in 1641, the king commented pathetically that All of these are simply thoughts that come to me, about which I tell you to follow up the good ones and disregard the bad ones. I leave it all to your good judgment. 
Richelieu had certainly become accustomed to this working relationship, but the task for Mazarin must have appeared daunting, especially since he had barely five months with Louis before his death in mid-May 1643. There was precious little time to build any kind of lasting relationship, or ensure that the king adhered to the late Richelieu's wishes. Plainly, if Mazarin wanted to cling to his position, he'd have to depend upon the powers granted to him through the regency, which had been established to protect and mould the regime of the infant king, Louis XIV, a guy who probably wouldn't do all that much in the future. In time, Mazarin would come to recognise Louis XIV as one of the defining monarchs of his age, but in 1643 he was forced to rely on the mercies of Queen Anne, Louis XIII's widow, for support. Unfortunately for Mazarin, though, Anne happened to be not only the brother of the King of Spain, but also a committed enemy of the late Richelieu. Again, Mazarin was fortunate that the widowed queen listened to him and worked alongside him. The events of the next few years were to draw them even closer together. Back in Madrid, the preservation of Richelieu's policy could not have been expected, and some hoped that a turn in French policy, with the Spanish king's sister leading the charge, would follow. On the 28th of May 1643, King Philip himself wrote that, The death of King Louis should be enough to procure all we desire in the making of an honest peace, since, among other things, France's allies will no longer be certain of her assistance, while I can offer myself as custodian to defend the new king against any challenge to his authority which may arise within the kingdom. We may be tempted to criticise this view of France as breathtakingly naive, considering how the course of the war was to play out. Yet, in the highly personal kingdoms of the period, such an expectation was not unusual, especially since a Habsburg relative sat in Paris. Indeed, historical precedents did exist, and history would itself be repeated a century later, most famously in 1762, when the death of Empress Elizabeth of Russia and the ascension of Tsar Peter III effectively saved Frederick the Great's Prussia from disaster. Certainly by summer 1643, it was only reasonable for Spain to pursue any avenue which might lead to peace. Roquois was akin to the cherry on top of a cake which had become increasingly bitter and dangerous. But during the campaigning season of 1643, there had been cause enough for despair. Reportedly, when the fortress of Perpignan in Roussillon fell to the forces of the French king late in 1642, Count Olivares threatened to throw himself out a window. The threat was never made good of self-defenestration, but Olivares would be relieved of his duties in January 1643. He had outlasted his great rival and counterpart in France by little more than a month, but he was arguably a great deal more miserable in his retirement than Richelieu had been in his death. Olivares lingered on for two more years before dying, perhaps taking solace from the fact that his successors proved no more capable at stemming the tide of defeat and decline than he had been. Olivares, as much as his successors, were hampered by the facts, and the facts were that Spain was running out of money as much as she was running out of options. With the eruption of the Portuguese War and the Catalan Revolt at the same time in 1640, there were fewer and fewer resources to spare, either for the Netherlands or for engaging with France. Indeed, the annual injection of monies sent to Brussels more than halved between 1639 to 43. 
and the subsidy to Spain's German allies shrank with it. Considering the chronic neglect of the army, it is hardly surprising in retrospect that when a bankrupt Brussels sent out its army under de Milo in spring 1643, the campaign was an utter disaster for them. Upon learning of the disaster at Roquois, Spanish officials didn't hide their sense of dread. While certainly not the triumphant all-conquering victory which Condé and French propagandists would later claim, to the extent that the Battle of Tuttlingen was effectively forgotten, Roquois was critically important for one major reason, because if it had been a defeat of the French, then this ill omen coming a few days removed from the death of the king could have been a catastrophe. According to Don Luis de Haro, Olivares' nephew and successor as Spanish favourite, Roquois was something which can never be called to mind without great sorrow, since it was a defeat which is giving rise in all parts to the consequences which we always feared. Notwithstanding the historical debate surrounding Roquois, one could thus argue that the loss was painfully felt in Madrid, and it added additional urgency to the cause of peacemaking. Regarding said debate on Roquois, the historian David Parrott, in his analysis of Richelieu's impact upon the Army of France, provides a perceptive evaluation of the significance of the battle, writing, The traditional argument that Roquois first broke the myth of the invincibility of the Spanish Tertios is not supported by a detailed overview of the period after 1635, where numerous examples were seen of Spanish armies going down to defeat at the hands of French opponents. The wider significance of Roquois is also open to question, especially given the obvious circumstances that the battle occurred as a result of a Spanish invasion of France, not because of a French advance into the Spanish Netherlands. A Spanish victory at Roquois, occurring in the context of a royal minority and uncertainty about the nature of the French governmental regime after the deaths of both Richelieu and Louis XIII, would have been more disastrous for France than the heavy loss of veteran infantry, which was the main consequence for Spain of her defeat. There was no decisive French breakthrough in Italy or in Catalonia, though both received increased allocations of troops and funding through the mid-1640s. Even in the Empire, military progress was halted for a campaign after the setback of late 1643, when the army of Germany was surprised during its winter quarters and virtually destroyed at Tuttlingen. Only from 1645 was there evidence of real movement towards military political objectives in this theatre. With the uninspiring returns from Roquois, an empowered Mazarin determined to send representatives to the unfolding Congress in Westphalia just in time for spring 1644. He had delayed doing so throughout 1643 in the hope that military victories might improve the French negotiating position, a tactic which was to be used repeatedly over the next few years. With a lapsed German front, some gains made on the Pyrenean front at Roussillon, and his new regime to secure, Mazarin had a lot on his plate through the latter half of 1643, even without delegating responsibilities to French plenipotentiaries at Osnabrück and Münster. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. To a gentleman, any country is his homeland, was the famous remark Mazarin made in 1637, and he certainly lived that philosophy. Mazarin would spend the next two decades importing all manner of Italian influences to Paris, including its religious orders and opera singers. In short, the former Mazzarini was content to make himself at home, and his improving relationship with Queen Anne, rumoured to have been quite scandalously intimate, only aided his rise. But perhaps we're being unfair to Anne and Mazarin. After all, they were both outsiders in France. In fact, both had been born as subjects of Spain before transferring their allegiance thereafter to the French crown. In this respect, they held their origins in common, but that was where the similarities ended. Anne, at 42 years old, was only nine months older than Mazarin, yet she pursued very different interests after her husband's death, mostly in the religious sphere, but above all in taking care of her son. In Mazarin, she found the ideal partner. Mazarin was not just the godfather of the young Louis XIV, he was also charged with the boy king's education, and thus maintained an iron grip on his life until Louis XIV came of age. Mazarin had left his native Rome behind for greater opportunities in France, and while he had risen high, he could not leave Rome or the papacy firmly behind him. The mid-1640s were a turbulent time for said papacy, and this at a time when Europe truly needed a sincere mediator, so it was particularly unfortunate. Yet it had been made clear long before to Pope Urban VIII that nobody trusted him to be impartial. Though he was nominally a French papal candidate, Urban was dismayed by consistent French intervention in Italy, beginning with the Mantuan Wars and only escalating after 1635. But it has to be said that Pope Urban did himself no favours. In October 1641, he took the opportunity to attack the small duchy of Castro. This provoked a war with the surrounding Italian powers, including Venice and Tuscany, who counter-attacked the following autumn. As King Louis marched towards Roussillon, the Pope's forces were fighting their Italian brethren in bloody skirmishes, and Urban sacrificed his reputation on the battlefield as well as in the realm of mediation. Neither Urban's fortifications nor his impressive army of 20,000 men proved sufficient for the task of resisting the combined might of his Italian foes. One could hardly trust a figure who was so blatantly opportunistic and consumed by power politics, but upon Urban's death in July 1644, the situation became more urgent for Mazarin. 
as plague racked Rome during the sweltering summer and the papal conclave met to elect a new leader, the Spanish managed, against Mazarin's expectations, to emerge successful. Pope Innocent X was Spain's candidate for Pope, and Mazarin could thus expect little in the way of sympathy or aid from his former home. All this was to come for Mazarin in late 1643, but he was fortunate that the organisation and administration of France was beginning to tell. In the face of the 45,000 civil servants spread over innumerable judicial and financial departments, Spain had few answers. Mazarin effectively made a gamble in late 1643 then. He gambled that expensive and painful though the war with Spain was bound to be, if pressure was maintained in all the vulnerable regions, Spain could be forced to make an unfavourable peace before the excesses of taxation on the French people became too much to bear. Or, in other words, Mazarin bargained that Spain would be defeated before France collapsed in revolt. In fact, history would show that in the next 16 years of war between France and Spain, revolts erupted on both sides, only for France still to pull ahead of its rival by the time peace was made in 1659. Of course, this victory was not without a price. Richelieu, who was never fully versed in economic matters, still greatly feared the prospect of the people rising up in protest against increased taxes or greater governmental interference. Near the end of his life, in August 1642, Richelieu still took the time to opine, I have to say that I do not understand why you do not give more thought to the consequences of the decisions you take in the Council of Finance. It is easy to prevent misfortunes, even the worst, but when they strike, no remedy can be found. If the Council of Finance continues to allow the tax farmers and financiers full liberty to threat His Majesty's subjects according to their insatiable appetites, certainly France will fall victim to some disorder similar to that which has befallen Spain. By wishing to have too much, we will create a situation where we have nothing at all. Due to his decision to take that gamble, though, Mazarin neglected to heed his predecessor's advice. This was most visible in Mazarin's decision to farm France's most important tax, a tax on property, to private financiers. Although it was a property tax, this was particularly oppressive on the peasantry, who bore the greatest proportion of the burden. When it was collected by the government, it could be organised and calculated appropriately, its officers' pay deducted from their takings. When it was privatised, though, Mazarin did nothing less than create a class of men who engorged themselves on wealth and owed no loyalty to anyone. The full details of this disaster are not worth investigating now, but it should be noted that the policy soured relations between the French people and the court, where Mazarin soon became infamous as the greedy foreign corrupter violating the sanctity of the French royal family. By 1648, traditionally seen as a year of peace in Europe, these sentiments became so acute that they erupted in a revolt known as the Fronde, which drew in countless citizens and civil servants, but also more distinguished men and commanders, such as Condé. Perhaps Mazarin's personal style was partially to blame. In contrast to Richelieu, Mazarin was privately warm and friendly, but he was utterly ruthless in the diplomatic sphere. He tended to pursue a policy which was governed less by principles and bound instead by the French interest. To Richelieu, this interest had revolved around the idea of creating leagues in Germany and Italy, which France could influence directly. 
Mazarin allowed that idea to slip, instead pursuing power politics, instead pursuing power politics, based on the familiar concept of territorial expansion. The more land France seized at the peace table, the more secure her realm would be in peacetime. There was reason enough to justify this logic. After all, France had been surrounded in previous years by Spanish possessions on virtually all its flanks save the Atlantic coast. By undermining Spanish authority in the Spanish Netherlands, French Comte, Alsace, Lorraine and Italy, France would be much more secure along her borders. Mazarin's goals loomed into view in the early years of the Westphalian Congress. They had built upon Richelieu's in that Mazarin believed Alsace could be and should be taken, but that Catalonia should be bargained away. Mazarin remained true to Richelieu's legacy in that he maintained the alliances with the Dutch and Swedes, but in the case of the Dutch, he seems to have been somewhat tone-deaf to their concerns. From 1642, when the prospects for a Spanish reconquest of the Dutch Republic was effectively nil, the Dutch army was reduced in size. This reflected a sense of exhaustion on the part of the Dutch regents, or wealthy merchant class, who chafed under the military leadership and incessant demands of Frederick Henry, the stadtholder of the House of Orange. The presence of a peace and war party in the Dutch Republic was nothing new, but Mazarin did not prove as sensitive to their existence as Richelieu had done. Instead, Richelieu's successor succeeded in offending Dutch sensibilities by intimating only a total victory in Flanders would suffice and requesting much more from the Dutch in military aid than Richelieu had ever asked for. Mazarin also differed from Richelieu in his pursuit of that supposedly uniform goal of the late cardinal, a universal peace. This was the idea that by making peace with all powers instead of each power piecemeal, the actual peace treaty would be a great deal more secure and long-lasting. Mazarin believed in this concept, but he took pleasure in threatening the Spanish that they would be excluded from the final Westphalian peace treaty, and a quick examination of what happened post-Westphalia shows that this threat was made good, as we said, the French and Spanish only made peace in 1659. Towards his other ally, the Swedes, Mazarin was more in tune with his vision of a universal peace. A running theme of the conference was to be fear in Paris and in Stockholm that some dirty trick would be pulled to divide the two allies. These fears were fanned by imperial, Spanish and Bavarian intrigues, but they never bore significant fruit. Mazarin was only genuinely interested in investment where there was a chance of a reasonable rate of return and, surprisingly considering his origins, he was of the opinion that Italy was not such a place to get such returns. He wrote to the French plenipotentiaries in 1644, It is next to impossible that the arms of the king can make any considerable progress in Italy. The next campaign will be the tenth since the declaration of war, Yet we are still starting on the state of Milan, the places of which are so well fortified that even supposing all prosperity for our arms, it will be a great deal to capture one every year with enormous expense. The Italian perspective was likely inculcated in Mazarin further by the troubles with the papacy in the early 1640s and the arrival of a Spanish candidate as Pope. Following that development, Mazarin likely perceived that there were even fewer chances of success in Italy than ever before. As we'll see though, this didn't prevent him from making further use of Spanish difficulties in that peninsula later in the decade. Although his to-do list remained consistently long, diplomacy was Mazarin's overriding concern, 
and he thus took the time to delegate responsibility for other matters, such as finance and war, when he came into more power and money. These appointments of men such as Le Tellier and the Colbert family were to prove highly significant for France, as these families remained in power, and, arguably, such families are the main reason Louis XIV was able to command such a strong hand over the French country. France and Spain were not the only theatres to experience a change in leadership in 1643. Following the disaster of the previous year, Emperor Ferdinand delicately dismissed his brother, Leopold William, from the command of the main imperial army in Germany and replaced him with the long-serving Matthias Gallus, a veteran of Wallenstein's, but also, by 1643, an irredeemable alcoholic. Ferdinand was too desperate to care, but his subsequent efforts to rescue the Habsburg military situation in 1643 demonstrated that all was not lost. For one, the manpower pool remained impressive. Franz von Mercy commanded over 22,000 Bavarians. In Cologne, under Melchior von Hatzfeld, was another 15,000, and the newly appointed Gallus had 32,000. Were these armies to combine, a formidable Swede-beating force might be created, but the troubles presented by the different fronts meant that this was, for the moment at least, impossible. Franz von Mercy was defending Bavaria and the Middle Rhine against the French. The army in Cologne under Hatzfeld was to guard against the Hessians, and this left Matthias Gallus with his main army, and there was no mistaking his mission in 1643. Little did Gallus know that while he had been given his orders, Lennart Torstensen had been given new orders of his own, and once the holes had been plugged and Sweden's defensive positions in Germany secured, these orders resembled nothing less than a retreat, in secret, back to Sweden. Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna, it transpired, had eyed up a new target, which was dearer to his heart and closer to home than those minor German outposts, Denmark. The attack on Denmark and all its implications will be covered in the next episode, History Friends. But for now, I want to say a huge thanks to you for listening and supporting this show as 2022 becomes 2023. Don't forget what I said about that new series coming out. It's so new, I still don't have a name for it, but I'm really excited to see what you think. And again... You can get it all on Patreon, and you can get Patreon at a really, really good offer right now, at 16% off. You pay once, and you don't have to worry about it again, and that money goes straight into my fees. But for now, I will take my leave. My name is Zach, this has been episode 71 of the 30 Years War, you're a wonderful history friend, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all 
body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.